oftentimes I think of watersheds as living lifeboats from ridge to river, from summit to sea, from stem to stern. We have to rethink and retrofit these living lifeboats at every scale of land use from forestry to rangeland to agriculture to urbanization, suburbanization. Dolman is the co-founder and program director of the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center in Sonoma, California, where he co-directs the Water Institute. He's a veteran permaculture design teacher and the coiner of the phrase, slow it, sink it, spread it. Hi, I'm here today with Brock Dolman. So welcome. Glad to have you on here. Well, thanks for having me on, Alf. I appreciate your podcast and all your emails are always super interesting and and on the cutting edge of these interesting questions about water and the planet and our relationship with it. Thank you. Um, to start off, how about uh, you share a little bit about how you got into water and restoring the water cycle? I think I'm like everybody, we're all amphibians. So our first nine months of life, we're aquatic. We are in the amniotic fluid there and then the water breaks. And basically uh, here on planet water, I, I refer to us as bipedal sacks of saline solution because we've internalized our oceanic selves. And as a biologist, which I'm a biologist by birth and then subsequent training, um, I think that I have become really clear that on planet water where life is endemic and water is life, life is carbon-based, but mostly water. And so as a biologist, if I'm interested in creating conditions conducive for life, I have to be attentive to the carbon cycle and the water cycle and the nexus between those two cycles. And so it's, it's, it's kind of intrinsic. I went to UC Santa Cruz uh, and did a double major in agroecology and conservation biology. And at some point working as a biologist doing endangered species work, environmental impact reports, it became pretty clear to me that when the water cycle, the quantity and quality of water in a place had been compromised because of some human development, agriculture, forestry, ranching, urbanization, mining, that um, the carrying capacity for life was accordingly compromised. And often the endangered species driver for many of these species, the habitat loss was actually impacts to water quality and quantity. So I really moved my, not that I'm, I'm still conservation biology focused, but I coined this whole idea of, of being a conservation hydrologist and really thinking about the whole, the whole system of, of, of planet water. Mm. And then as you kind of became this conservation hydrologist, how did you um, figure out what to do to restore the water cycle? Well, I would say that uh, another practice that I have been um, professionally involved with for now 30 years as a teacher and designer is, is this thing called permaculture. And, and permaculture is a, a contraction of an idea of permanent agriculture coined by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, these Australians. And we at OAC have been a permaculture design training facility for yeah just 30 years now. And, and I would just say that permaculture as a, when I had the recognition that human settlement or more modern settler colonist human settlement patterns have been based on degenerative disturbances versus regenerative disturbances, unlike say traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous wisdom that composes with instead of imposes upon, in thinking about how do we retrofit human modern human settlement patterns through again agroecology and conservation biology at landscape scales it really um i think 
ultimately occurred to me that the method of permaculture where you're, you're, you have ethics and principles and a methodology of a site assessment and analyzing a system and understanding the system and then creating a goal towards then developing a strategy to respond to whatever you observe. So it's really the application of permaculture design based on the intention of a restoration ecology, a regenerative ecology framework, honoring the carbon and water cycle, again, on behalf of life cycles, which not just human life cycles, but creating conditions conducive for all species of life for all generations. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid of those processes. There's very much the conceptual work, and then there's the, the design assessment work, and then there's the actual application or implementation of work. And that's a, it depends answer. Energy flows, matter cycles, and life webs. And Dr. Art Sussman kind of coined that triumvirate there. And, and so the flowing of energy is really understanding the verbs in a system. The matter cycling is really understanding the matter, the nouns, the periodic chart of elements, if you will. And then life webs, the, the nouns using the energy of verbs to create these incredible things called ecosystems. <laughs> and, and ultimately this whole idea of the Gaia hypothesis of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis's idea of the, this planet and the presence of life on this planet for 3.8 billion years has been creating conditions conducive for itself on the planet. And I wanna get on board with that 3.8 billion years worth of wisdom. Cool. So when I was learning permaculture, I learned this phrase, slow it, sink it, spread it. Is, is it true that you, you're the one that coined that phrase? It is true. I coined that phrase. I'll have to, my riff on it is slow it, spread it, sink it, store it, share it. That's kind of the okay. full array of it. So we wanna, it, it's sort of like how there, uh, Carlo Petrini had the slow food movement. And in response to McDonald's showing up in the Piazza di Espana in, in Italy, in Rome there, and Carlo actually came to OEC in the early 90s, we got to hang out. And so I really thought about this idea of what I call the slow water movement. And, and because we've had this fast water movement, we've been living in the drain age, or I would say that the dominant land use paradigm of North America for hundreds of years since settlement, um, settler colonialism has really been kill the beaver, genocide the native people, drain the wetlands, ditch the land, and dehydrate it for settlement patterns. Yeah, so we just really moved from a, a drain age paradigm where we're draining things and we're paving and piping and polluting and plundering and making it go away as fast as possible and as dirty as possible. We want to slow it, spread it, sink it, store it, and share it, and keep it around as clean and as long as possible. Um, and so that's really the transition between to that idea of the slow it, spread it, sink it mantra, which really comes out of my work for decades in, in stormwater management and the Clean Water Act at the federal level, the Porter Cologne Act in California, and the recognition of non-point source pollution being a really big deal and things called low impact development and stormwater management and rain gardens and bioswales and porous pavement and roof water catchment and, and groundwater recharge structures, that those retrofitting the land use to be a rehydrative sponge versus a dehydrative system. And that's really where I kind of synthesize the nugget of that idea as we need to slow it, spread it, sink it, store it, share it. So, so is, are you saying as a combo from your stormwater and your permaculture and you're trying to condense it into a catchy 
phrase and then that phrase came to you? Is that kind of? Yeah, I mean, I approached when I began working in urban stormwater management and low impact development, LID work, um, I again brought the, the perceptual design method worldview of as a permaculturalist. Um, to me, permaculture is a method for basically how do we create regenerative and socially just systems that are based on natural patterns and processes. So when I was looking at stormwater management and green infrastructure versus say gray infrastructure, then we use the same tools, the principles of protracted and thoughtful observation and stacking functions and relative location with on-site resources, with planned redundancy, these basic permaculture design principles, and they apply to, to everything we do. And so slow it, spread it, sink it became a, a sticky meme that encapsulates sort of an ethos behind a, a deep level of, of work that the, you know, the world is doing in the realms of stormwater management and low impact development. Mm. Um, so do you want to explain some of the methodologies we can use to slow it, sink it, spread it, store it? Sure. Well, I, I start with um, most of my work as an educator is what I call ecosystem restoration. And really the moment right now is that the ego system, the system of egos, us collective societal group of hominids um, uh, could use a, a 2.0 retrofit in, in the realms of ecological literacy, hydrological literacy <laughs> from this drain age mentality to the retain age. So the restoration is really trying to tell a new story about our relationship with the water cycle, with carbon cycles, with life cycles. And so I think that I often talk about the, the most important, we, whenever we're doing watershed work, we often talk about starting in the headwaters in the upper parts of the system. But for me, the most important headwaters to start in is actually the water in our own heads and actually the mitigation of cerebral imperviousness <laughs> so that we can infiltrate the information into the headwaters and then through the heart waters, and then it emerges out of the hand waters where we get to do it. So the DIY is informed by the TIY, which is the think it ourselves, feel it ourselves, and then we do it ourselves. And, and so I think that's the conceptual educational part of the work. Then, the, then I think you analyze a system and it's whatever scale you're working at. You ask, I often start with the question, what would water want? And in want, meaning on behalf of its quality and its quantity in relationship to life, how, could, how can we support water in the presence of water in our landscape, in our home, in our farm, in our range ranching operation, whatever the scale you're working at, how can we really think deeply about the water cycle connected to the carbon cycle, to those life cycles? And so where do we have uh, where is runoff? Where is water leaving the land at volumes and velocities greater than it was, say, in the pre-development, pre-settler condition? And where is it leaving maybe faster and full of sediment, dirt, or pollutants, or something else? And so though you, we look for those, those what I think of as keystone processes, and the, the relationship of landscape, and when precipitation comes to that landscape, snow, rain, fog, what is its interaction with that landscape before it, quote, goes away? 
wherever a way is, the drainage, and, and how do we optimize the functionality of that system to retain the quantity appropriate to that system and preserve or enhance the quality of the water in that system. So that may look like roofs are impervious surfaces. And so maybe we put a roof water harvesting tank there to store water because we can then use that in the dry season. And that decreases the runoff and the overflow to the tank goes into a rain garden to infiltrate into the ground to reduce runoff and storm flood peaks that we're now irrigating a vegetation community of edible plants or natives with that storm water. And we've stored water in the tank. And therefore our water budget of our home, we've, we're balancing the budget to the amount of rainfall that lands on the site versus either sucking it out of the ground with a well or stealing it from some other watershed through a municipal system where you dammed up a big river and impacted that river and you live in a pipe shed versus a watershed. So how can we reconnect to watersheds versus pipe sheds? Mm. And then how about in um, uh, agriculture? How can agriculture slow it, sink it, spread it, store it better? Yeah, um, worked a lot with groups in California on agriculture. Um, for a number of years, there was the, we, we had a whole group on, on water and food supply security through the um, um, Ag Innovations Network. If people look up Ag Innovations Network and look up the California uh, Roundtable on water and food supply. And we did a series of booklets on this that were published. And I think, again, agriculture, like anyone, is there's a water budget. What's the crop they're growing? What are the soils that they have? What is their supply of water for, say, irrigation? Um, matching the crop to drop is always a, an interesting question. Efficiencies, drip versus flood irrigation, for instance. And then when the water runs off that landscape, is it, is it cleaner or not because of the land use there? And I think increasingly what you see in agriculture in California, for instance, Governor Newsom just helped free up some regulation of looking at um, agricultural lands in valley bottoms where you have lower gradient systems with these big peak flow events, these atmospheric rivers we've been getting with the snow melt that we're getting right now because of this huge winter, that water that um, re allowing rivers to reconnect to their floodplains as they had done before the drainage. When rivers talked to their floodplains, they slowed, they spread out, they sank, they stored and they shared, and they were full of beavers and riparian wetlands and off-channel habitats. And then generally what we've done again is kill the beaver, and then we straight jacket the river by putting levees, and we force it into a single channel, and we dehydrate the floodplains, and yet we put wells in the floodplains and the valley bottoms, so we're sucking groundwater out of the piggy bank, but yet we're not allowing water to get back in the piggy bank because we're not allowing recharge. So how can we support groundwater recharge through reconnection of floodplains and using agricultural land as one of those opportunities because so many of those historic floodplains were, aren't functional floodplains anymore because they were dewatered on behalf of agriculture. So how can agriculture, certain types of agriculture, parts of a farm that are conducive to it be reconnected to uh, certain flood flows to recharge groundwater, slow the peak flow, sequester sediment, build uh, carbon on site. Um, 
and, and, and then agricultural water efficiency, obviously. Again, choosing the crop, like maybe as we're learning about the Colorado River system right now and the big dams and the mega drought, that 80 to 85% of all the water used in the Colorado River system is actually going to agriculture and growing alfalfa in deserts to bundle up that hay for uh, feeding confined animal feeding operations and, and other operations or exporting it to <laughs> Saudi Arabia um, maybe isn't the wisest choice for water in a limited system like like a, a desert like the Colorado River. So what what are what are we using water for? And agriculture is really going to have to face up to that. And urbanization's really got to face up to that. Phoenix and Tucson and Los Angeles and Imperial Valley Water District, San Diego, Los Angeles, they're all having to face up to their relate their reliance on a couple big dams in the Colorado River and the this mega drought and the fact that they dodged a little bit of a bullet this year, but it's not a long-term fix. And so everybody I think has to rethink our relationship to water and our connection to the quantity and quality and pattern our land use according to the intrinsic characteristic of the watershed and be in relations with our basin. It's what I call the basins of relations. And so your, has your Water Institute been trying to change some of the agricultural practices? And if so, what have you been trying to do to change? I mean, I think we're, we've certainly been engaged with a number of agricultural producers. I, I think we focus, so the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center is an 80 acre piece of land in Western Sonoma County. And we, it's an intentional community. Seven of us purchased it together in 1994. So we're going on our 30th year of living in intentional community, but there's also the OAEC, which is the 501c3, the nonprofit. And the land here had been uh, being a farmed or bi a garden biointensively since the mid seventies when it was called the Farallons Institute's Rural Center. And those folks in the eighties put in an off stream upland rainwater harvesting pond, a classic dam. And that's a hundred percent of all the water for our entire agricultural operation here. So we're have been modeling off stream storage of upland water holding capacity. And then during the big drought a few years ago, we retrofitted the entire farm to drip. And that saved, saved over 80% of our annual water demand on the farm. We're the sixth oldest certified organic farm in California. It's, and so I think we've been trying to model off-stream storage, water harvesting, irrigation efficiency, organic matter in soils, living soils, compost, water holding, mulching, plant choice, to demonstrate an integrated holistic framework. Again, we're a small operation, that's three acres, but the principles and the ideas are scale independent, they're scalable. And so, um, so we work a lot with other agriculturists, especially on upland water retention and recharge, soil health, carbon sequestration, irrigation efficiency. Cool. Um, you mentioned beavers. Do you want to share a little bit about the work you're doing with beavers and the importance of beavers to the water cycle? Sure. Um, my family all come out of Idaho and Montana, and I grew up around the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, where there was a lot of beavers. So for me, beavers is a critter that as someone who grew up fishing a lot, trout fishing, I always loved a good beaver pond because there was always big fish in that beaver pond. And so just kind of beavers to me were always just something that were just second nature. 
living in California for the last 40 years and intensively here in Sonoma County for the last 30. So living in the Russian River Basin, I live in the Dutch Bill Creek watershed, the lower Russian River. The Russian River is historically a famous salmon-bearing watershed, Chinook salmon, coho, steelhead trout. These are anadromous fish. They're born in freshwater. They go to saltwater, they get really big, they come back to freshwater, they spawn, then they die. They leave all those marine nutrients, the anadromous nutrient pump. In the Russian, the coho salmon were numbers of 50,000 in the 1950s. And by two, the year 2000, we were down to six to 10 fish. So a bunch of us as a, as a conservation biologist, uh, a conservation hydrologist was very involved in coho recovery. And working on dam removal, habitat enhancement, in-stream flows, a number of things for the salmon. And I got to thinking about beavers and in the early 2000s. And nobody, to be honest with you, was really talking about beavers in California in the year 2000. They were considered mostly a non-native and mostly a nuisance, and people just wanted to kill them. And through a series of processes and meeting other folks, we uh, eventually in 2012, the OEC Water Institute created the Bring Back the Beaver campaign. We published a series, we co-published with other colleagues, a series of peer-reviewed papers on the historic ecology of beaver in California and the Sierra Nevada and the coastal zone, the Bay Area, asserting that they were more widely distributed than was thought. And in fact, they were native to much of the state. And then we really worked on articulating the benefits of beaver. So here you've got a a, an aquatic, semi-aquatic mammal with big teeth and just enough smarts to figure out how to slow and spread and sink and store and share water. Their famous dam building capacities, the way they, they, they make their burrows, they're farmers, they irrigate the riparian because they're vegetarians and they, they eat the bark of trees, they eat cattails, they eat willows, they eat sedges and rushes and grasses. So they're, they're engineers that build dams they're masons that seal the dams. They're farmers that irrigate food forests of riparian habitat. They recharge groundwater. They make wetted areas that are less flammable. So Smokey the beaver is helping to save Smokey the bear. Their wetlands are famous for sequestering carbon. And also that biodiversity in the wetland is um, a biofilter. So it's producing cleaner water, with increased water quantity, with groundwater recharge, with carbon sequestration, with flood attenuation and fire resiliency, all the while making habitat for endangered species and other biodiversity for us. And they do it for free and they do it better. So why not bring back the beaver? So that's what we've been working on for the last, like I said, 20 years, but very focused since our 11th year of the campaign. And I'm happy to say that in California, Governor Newsom last summer put a budget line in to create a brand new beaver restoration program to be managed by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. It has funding for five permanent staff and they're in the process, the Department of Fish and Wildlife or CDFW has now hired those five staff. They're now working on a beaver management plan. We're working on depredation permits, like conditioning the permits to kill beaver. So it's more like a three strikes rule. How can we coexist with beaver, non-lethal coexistence with them, help the beaver be better beaver where they are instead of killing them. And in some cases, if need be, um, 
translocate or relocate beaver to areas where they used to be, especially mountain meadows, coastal waterways for salmon, riparian rangelands with cattle operations, urban streams, working a lot with tribal communities who want to bring back the beaver. And so that's a really exciting moment. And um, the, we're very happy that the, the governor and the Department of Fish and Wildlife have created this new program and are really launching what will be a historic program in California to bring back the beaver. Mm, congratulations. Thank you for all your efforts. I think we all thank you for that. Sure. Um, and would you say that the beaver plays kind of a big role in how the West Coast of the US, you know, the, or it plays a pretty big role in how the whole biome and the forest and all that grew in the West Coast of the US? So the, yeah, so beaver, what's interesting. So, right, we're talking about a rodent. And in fact, on the planet, there are two species of beaver that are still living. And we have the North American beaver, Castor canadensis. And that is throughout most of Canada, throughout most of the lower 48 of the US. And in fact, they ranged into Northern Mexico in the Sonoran desert area. And then also there's Castor fiber and that's all over Europe and Eurasia. So those two species. and what we do know is that the trapping of beaver, because their fur made incredible hats, and also their castoreum gland was used for perfumes and flavorings, they were nearly extincted in Europe in the 1300s and such. And then really the, a, one of the primary drivers of colonization of North America, especially across the top in the 1500s, 1600s, was the pursuit of beaver fur. And so the big fur companies, the Hudson Bay companies, the American fur companies trapped their way across North America all the way over to the East Coast. And they started trapping in California in the late 1780s all the way through the 1830s and 40s. People think about California, they think about the gold rush a lot, but what preceded the gold rush in California was actually what's called the fur rush. And in my opinion, actually the first rush in California I call the soul rush, which is when the, the Franciscan friars showed up here to missionize indigenous people. So there was a soul rush, then the fur rush, then the gold rush happened. And the fur rush, the removal of sea otters and fur seals and beavers and other fur bearing animals impacted our near shore waterways, our kelp beds by the loss of the sea otter as a keystone species and the beavers in our mountain meadows, our coastal streams, our wetlands. So we basically killed out the water wetland managers, the mountain meadow managers called the beaver and then dehydrated that landscape to sell furs to make hats with. And so absolutely everywhere throughout North America, but especially in what's known as the arid mountain west and these Mediterranean climates, different than the east coast where it's more humid and there's more water, the critical importance of beaver in the west, in the Great Basin, in the Rocky Mountains, in the Cascades, in the Sierras in California, where we have these short winters that are rain, snow dominated and rain in the winter, and we have long dry seasons, the beaver are the ones that slow the flow, they slow it, spread it, sink it, store it, so they share it with all of life. And we need them differently and more critically out here in the West than say, maybe say the East Coast or the Southeast, which are they're important out there too. But the West, I think folks really recognize in these mega droughts, there's a lot of ranchers in Idaho, Wyoming, uh, 
Eastern Oregon right now, Utah, who are recognizing in Nevada, for instance, as great ranchers there, who basically said 20, 30 years ago, we killed beavers. Right now, if we didn't have beavers, we'd be out of business in the drought because there'd be no water and we'd have to sell our cows off. And it's not just the water for the cows to drink, but the beavers rehydrate the valley bottoms and that water laterally spreads out. And so the pastures for the cattle are getting subsurface irrigated. So the ranchers have both more water for cows to drink and they have more forage that's irrigated longer. So they have more cattle food. So they get a double benefit out of, of working with beavers. So we often say that beaver and bovines are buddies. Wow. So, so if people uh, want to replicate what you helped to uh, do in California with the beavers in other places around the world, do you have some uh, hints about how they can go about, you know, changing laws and changing, you know, people's perceptions of beavers? Sure. The the, the interesting thing is is California we're kind of the last kids on the block to really get this. So we've actually been collaborating at the, the Water Institute's Bring Back the Beaver campaign and my co-director, Kate Lundquist. We partner and have been learning from the folks in Utah and the work they've been huh. pioneering, the folks in Eastern Washington with the Methow up in the Methow or with the Tulalip tribe in Washington who've been relocating beaver for, for a long time, um, folks in Idaho that have really been on the leading edge of beaver restoration for the last decade plus, some folks in the East Coast, there's actually a whole, um, and it'll be happening this year again in the uh, late fall, early winter, the State of the Beaver Conference will be up in, in the Umpqua Valley of, of Oregon. And so folks, we come from all over the nation and internationally to get together every few years to talk about beaver restoration. Um, Folks in the East Coast, the, the Beaver Institute, Mike Callahan, those folks have been doing amazing work for years. And then over in the, in the UK and other, and other places in Germany and France and Spain, there are whole communities that have been doing beaver restoration as part of a broader rewilding movement. And so um, there's a, a man named Derek Gao wrote a book about bringing back the beaver to the UK and their efforts that they have going on in, in Scotland and Wales and and. and in England and such, and in Germany's amazing work happening there. Um, and so it's a global movement with two species. And so we in California have really been learning from and trying to model some of our work. Um, California, interestingly enough, no other state in the union is really arguing about the degree to which beaver was native throughout the state. That's been a unique fight in California. So we had a, a steeper hill to climb early on which is why in 2012 and 2013, this group of us published these peer-reviewed papers in the, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's journal on the historic ecology of beaver, because that, so we kind of had, it, it's taken us a little bit longer to get going because it's more complicated in California and the degree to which beaver were trapped out so early by the 1830s um, that, people forgot and a hundred years later in the 1920s and 30s they were trying to think about it and beaver had been gone for a hundred years and so they were thought to be not as widely distributed so then it was another hundred years later in 2012 when we published these papers so we're doing work that's dealing with a 200 year realm of what i call the beaver blind spot and it's a certain kind of amnesia that we're again having to wake awaken people to to deal with and thankfully Folks are woke on the beaver thing at this point in California, as I said earlier, and 
Now we're rolling up our sleeves and implementing towards a management plan, coexistence strategies, relocation, and, and reclaiming the beavers. I would say beaver festivals have become quite a thing. The, the first beaver festival has been in the city of Martinez and the work of Heidi Perryman and her organization called Worth a Dam. Really fascinating story, look at that up. But there was just a, be a beaver festival called the Slow, San Luis Obispo, the Slow Beaver Brigade. They hosted a beaver festival down near San Luis Obispo here recently. Um, I just heard that there was one in the upper Midwest. There was one in Colorado. There's one over in Europe now. So a lot of communities are kind of rallying around and having these beaver festivals. And so it, it uh, you know, that's the fun part about beavers is they're a keystone species. And so whether you like water quantity, water quality, biodiversity, fire resiliency, groundwater recharge, carbon sequestration, beauty, just watchable wildlife, beaver have something to offer to everybody because they're really a nexus species. They're a solution species. Mm. Well, it's good to hear that there's these festivals and also good to hear that so much is going on else around the world. And um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I think sometimes when you first think about ecology and climate, you're just thinking that animals uh, adapt to the conditions um, that are given, like to the water conditions, to the rain conditions, but actually uh, the animals themselves can alter the water cycle. So the beavers are actually shifting the way rivers flow and also the small water cycle into maybe perhaps the rain patterns. And um, as a biologist, do you want to share if there's other keystone species that are helping slow it, sink it, spread it, or, uh, you know, develop our water cycle? Yeah, that's a, I mean, clearly beaver are in a class in and of themselves with respect to the interface with the water cycle. There's, there's not really another species that dams up whole river systems, <laughs> impounds whole rivers, reconnects floodplains, uh, ma makes new wetlands to the magnitude that beaver really do. Um, you know, moose have their own relationship in certain areas where there's moose. You know, grizzly bears are part of this kind of thing. The wolves are an interesting thing where the wolves aren't necessarily... Um, doing the water cycle nexus, but the, what the wolves were doing, like the story of Yellowstone in the Lamar Valley, where the wolves were exterminated back in the, I think, 1910s or 20s, because people thought, get rid of the wolves, and then there'll be more elk and more deer and more bison, more ungulates, more herbivores, and people wanted to see them. And what then was found is, you know, many decades later, say in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, is that the, the creeks, like in the Lamar Valley, the creek channel was denuded and was collapsing and was incising and was eroding and was dewatering and was failing. And these hy hydrologists started looking at this and going, what is going on? We're in a national park. This is pristine wilderness. Why is our waterway collapsing? It looks like it's in an in a, in, in a, a agricultural system that's been really hardly impacted. Meanwhile, the folks up on the slopes looking at aspens were like, God, there's only really old aspen and there's no baby aspen. And then finally, the wolf biologist showed up and said, you know, we should remind you that wolves were removed from this system. And wolves, this is an idea called the trophic cascade, where a top carnivore like a wolf, when they're present in the system, and some people talk a lot about the ecology of fear, that the elk, in this case, the dominant herbivore of riparian systems, of willow thickets, of aspen groves, 
even more so than the bison, um, were allowed, their populations were allowed to overpopulate and they were allowed to kind of get lazy and just hang out in the riparian corridor and hammer the willows and basically denude and devegetate the creeks, which then starved out the beavers. They lost out to the elk. And so the beavers were not long there any longer. And so they stopped managing dams and the whole entire system began to unravel. So really the wolf is the keystone species that by appropriately managing elk populations and keeping them on the move, could reduce the grazing pressure in the creek that allowed more willows to grow that gave beaver food so beaver could be better beavers to hold the water to restore the actual river valley. So, right, so it's, it's this complicated thing where everybody's got a piece of the puzzle they're playing in this system. Yes, yeah, so it kind of speaks to the biodiversity and also kind of the whole causal chain in ecology, like this is almost like a fourth degree causality, right? That wolves affecting the elk, affecting the trees, affecting the beaver, affecting the waterway. And so, um, so yeah, so in, in looking at our ecosystems, it's like there's evolution that's kind of evolved this complex interplay of all these animals that are kind of uh, controlling our, our, our water cycle in, in really interesting ways. And uh, as we kind of take out the biodiversity in our world, like we're affecting the water cycles, both on the ground and also because the water evapotranspires in the air and creates rain, it's also affecting the rain cycles. And I don't think we're really looking at that enough. Um, and I don't think people are aware of how biodiversity is affecting the water cycle. Yeah, no, I know, I know you and thank you for your work on this and others of us who've been involved in what is currently, you know, often referred to as the slow water cycle um, and, and water for climate and and some of this work of a number of amazing folks. Yeah, I think it's for those of us that um, uh, will often you know, deforestation leads to degradation and desertification through dehydration. And anybody who doesn't understand that hasn't really paid attention enough. And I think the Amazon basin is really well studied and understood of the relationship of evapotranspiration, plant sweat, if you will, and that connection of those plants and how they create conditions conducive for more of a humid, uh, more of, a, of a, a system that we know that's conducive in the, in the temperature regime, like really people tracking temperature and condensation. And that uh, what we know is that hot air rises and hot water rises. So if you clear cut a forest and the land is now scalding and baking, it's pushing that red heat up, if you will, that hot air, up, which means the cloud formation um, is getting higher and isn't isn't forming over that land and tends to move away and not rain in that place. So it's a what we in permaculture we call stacking dysfunctions, where deforestation drives the dehydration cycle because you removed the evapotranspiration pumps that humidify the air, that seed the clouds, that allow that um, that small water cycle to kick in. And I think that's been you know, really well documented and, and, and by a number of folks and, and, and is well, really well observed. So how is it that through the appropriate relationship to vegetation and evapotranspiration and fire, where we have fewer trees, but more forest in our Western systems that aren't overstocked with too many trees, and then where do beaver play in helping hold more water on the land to irrigate 
more of those trees so they're healthier and there's more water to evapotranspirate to help seed the vapor for the clouds and connect them. And when fire does show up, it's a slow moving cool fire that doesn't replace the stand and burn the whole forest to the ground to black ash that then isn't conducive for rain formation. So I think again, it's one of these, the keystone processes of earth, air, fire, water, and life is gaming all of those energy flows, matter cycles, and life webs. And life webs to create conditions conducive for its own fecundity, its own resiliency. And evolution, beaver evolved because it's Darwinian evolution. The better the beavers were, the better condition they were. They made more baby beavers and more baby, right? It's this, it's not that, it's not that complicated intellectually, but it's really complicated <laughs> with respect to the relationship and the pattern and the tragedy of the commons, if you will, is really that this, uh, this worldview, this settler colonial extraction capitalist worldview where the planet is perceived of as commodity versus community and that we come in and we we clear cut it we take all those trees out or we denude it or we ditch it and we drain it or we plow it those activities the last couple hundred years of this experiment say in the lower 48 of the u.s is showing itself that the condition of the landscape is lacking resiliency in a bunch of ways. And then you couple the emergent expression that our addiction to fossil fuels, the fossil fuels, the carbon, the liquid, you know, the gas, the, the coal, the, the, the oil, that we, thus the extraction of those sequestered organic compounds by reliberating them and burning them up in the atmosphere and the whole kicking off the process of the greenhouse effect being amplified and retaining more heat called global warming, which then changes climates is a double whammy. So now we're getting a climate change scenario where our weather patterns, our weather whiplash is becoming more erratic and the droughts are deeper and the floods are more intense and shorter. And that's all occurring on a landscape that has been so compromised because of the very development that created that greenhouse effect to amplify it, that it lacks resiliency in responding to it, right? So we see that runaway train effect, the, the snowball, what are known as a positive feedback loop, which is a negative thing, right? It's a runaway effect. And we're up, in, we're up against that. And so for some of us, how do we work with systems that both mitigate by reducing CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions on a mitigation side while we do adaptation simultaneously to improve resiliency. And beavers do both. If they're growing forest, increasing photosynthesis, sequestering carbon in wetlands, they're, they're bringing greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and storing them in peat bogs and wet meadows and forest systems. I, I would remind people that if you wanna, pay attention to one chemical formula, it's the formula of photosynthesis because you take a chloroplast in blue green, in, in, in basically cyanobacteria, the original photosynthetic organism, <laughs> which makes most of the oxygen on this planet in the oceans is cyanobacteria. Then there was algae that figured out this trick and then there's plants. So in the, in the five quote kingdoms of life, bacteria, algae, plants do the photosynthesis and animals and fungus 
are dependent on them and disassemble those molecules and are, are in a feedback loop where plants, algae, bacteria give off CO2, animals and fungus breathe oxygen, and, and we give off CO2, we breathe the oxygen, they give off the oxygen CO2 game, right? It's one of the great uh, atmospheric trade agreements that life figured out like 2 billion years ago is the CO2O2 relationship. And what's interesting is the two, the energy flowing into photosynthesis is sunlight, but the two molecules are six molecules of H2O, water, and six molecules of CO2. And then the magic of photosynthesis rearranges those into sugar, into polysaccharide chains, and liberates oxygen for us to breathe. And in the absence of photosynthesis, it's game over. So the point is, is equal inputs of CO2 and water, carbon cycle, water cycle, are the dominant inputs into photosynthesis. So if you're not playing on the carbon cycle side and the water cycle side, you're not creating conditions conducive for life, which is carbon-based and mostly water. Mm. So photosynthesis is kind of coupling two of the key cycles on Earth, the carbon and the water cycle. It, 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 is, it is the keystone coupler. If mm. photosynthesis wasn't happening, if life didn't evolve it three billion years ago, game over, we wouldn't be here. And all praise to bacteria, because they're the OGs. <laughs> they started this off. In fact, I don't know, many people really maybe don't pay attention, but so all life at the 3.8 billion year mark until about 3 billion or 3.2, all life for that 800 million years was as anaerobic. It was oxygenless life. It was, was anaerobic methanogenesis, the archaea. And then these cyanobacteria figured out this new trick and they were floating around and they figured out photosynthesis. And the output of photosynthesis is free oxygen. And for another 800 million years, almost a billion years, free oxygen built up in the atmosphere. It was the most toxic thing ever to life because all life before that was anaerobic and oxidization was the most toxic thing going. And basically the planet couldn't deal with the oxygen so it rusted itself. And you, the, if you look at these things called banded iron formations or BIFs, you'll see that the planet for 800 billion years rusted through an oxidization process in the ocean and sediment layered in the oceans and built up. And it's estimated that 80 to 90% of all the iron from the Iron Age that we've ever mined on this planet for all the metal iron stuff we build is the byproduct of the sediment of the planet that rusted for 800 million years because of life in the flatulence of bacteria farting out oxygen that no life could use. And then it was fungus and animals that evolved to take advantage of that oxygen and breathe it and give off CO2 that kicked off what then the really important next wave of evolution on this planet was that connection. And it's all about gas exchange and photosynthesis is the keystone driver of that. And then respiration of fungus and animals. So in metabolisms. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's not just that geology affects life, life actually affects geology, which then affects life again. So there's this feedback cycle. There's, yeah, exactly. Geology, igneous rock, sedimentary rock, metamorphic rock, these geologic processes, plate tectonics and volcanism, are the raw materials sculpting the planet. But biology gets in the way of some of those and affects geologic processes. So in fact, limestone, which we think of as geology, and if there's enough pressure and temperature, it becomes marble. And then 
people can sculpt it. But all that limestone, if you look at it, what is it? It's all fossils. It's all based on these little, these little calcium-based life forms that grew in the ocean and then they died and they sank to the bottom of it. So while limestone is a it it happened over geologic time, its metabolic production and creation is all biology. It's a hundred percent biology. Chert, chert is an incredible rock. It's a hundred percent these the the fossils of silicaceous organisms made out of silica. So when indigenous people here they flint nap chert to make arrowheads, it's like glass. They're literally silicaceous glass, like the geologic process of obsidian is a is a geology glass. Chert is a biologic glass, right? Mm -hmm. So biology and geology are happening simultaneously because it's about time. Yeah. I think uh, the Gaia hypothesis by James Lovelock, he was trying to make clearer, like this is all these feedback loops that it's not just the geology and the climate's affecting biology, but the biology is actually creating the conditions for life itself, the geology and the climate. And, uh, and, so, the, and so the gases too, like the biology is creating the gases. And what was interesting when I interviewed um, Anastasia Makareva and, and who works with Victor Gorshov on the biotic hypothesis, they were looking at biotic regulation, looking kind of similar ideas James Lovelock did. They were looking at the water and they were saying the water itself is also in a non-equilibrium state in the atmosphere. And I don't think James Lovelock looked at that. He was looking at the other gases, but it was very intriguing to say that, because James Lovelock was saying that gases, oxygen and carbon dioxide are in non-equilibrium states, but uh, Makareva and Gorshaw was saying, hey, the water vapor is also non-equilibrium. Is the biology affecting that, you know, and putting, keeping it at that critical state that keep, creates life? No, no, you're totally right. I think that, and and yeah, again, Lovelock, he he, because he was an atmospheric scientist, and he was asked to look at other planets and look at the atmospheres, and and so yeah, he was really focused on that. But um, um, you know, it was really um, oh gosh, I just said her name earlier. Now I'm totally having I'm spacing out. Um, Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis was the biologist in the mix. And it was Lynn Margulis with James Lovelock who partnered together. And the guy hypothesis, the integrity of it from the biology perspective, the genius of that, all credit should be given to Lynn Margulis as a, as a microbiologist. And she's the one who really brought in biology and she coined the term planet water. She's was the one thinking about the water cycle. And so I think it would be interesting for to really unpack her, her role in when James, he gets the, a lot of the credit for it because he published the book under the title, but it was really the collaboration with Lynn. And mm -hmm. there's an amazing movie about her for folks um, that is, um, I think it's called Symbiotic Earth. And I would highly recommend everybody, I don't know how to stream it or find it where it's at, but Symbiotic Work, uh, Symbiotic Earth. Lynn Margulis was married to Carl Sagan. They're very smart people. Their son, Dorian Sagan, is still around, incredibly smart character. Um, check them out, I think. And what you'll find is that the nexus of, of what Anastasia and those guys were looking at on the water cycle, and it, it, I'll bet Lynn was a lot, there was a lot of overlap and, and shared uh, convergent evolution, right? People really coming on to similar ideas when they think hard enough about it and evolving parallel theories because at some point it makes sense. Right, okay, cool. Yeah, I have to look at her work more. She was the one that kind of brought 
whole idea of symbiosis into evolution too, right? Because before that, everyone's looking at evolution as competitive. And then she's saying, hey, look at all these species that are symbiotically evolving. So that's the beauty of this film, Symbiotic Earth. And she absolutely is. And, and, and here's one of those tragic things about, uh, quote, modern Western science is, got to admit, it's steeped in a lot of sexism. And so as a woman in academia, she um, had a, a, a tougher road to hoe and didn't get a lot of the credit and didn't get a lot of the recognition at the time she did. And so I think going back and really unpacking and be a better understanding um, Lynn's work and many other amazing women scientists is, is an important piece of work. And the films, again, I can't say it enough, Symbiotic Earth is, is an incredible piece of work that will, I know the way you think, Alpha, you're, you're going to really, <laughs> and you're going to have to watch it several times. It's really dense. Mm. Yeah. That, and the whole idea of symbiosis coupled with the water cycle, I think is very intriguing, you know, in, in, I mean, like, and, and I think in ecology and they kind of do mathematical models that try to look at how, you know, population ecology, like how each species is affecting other species. And I don't know how much they put in the species are actually affecting the water cycle, you know, like, and then the water cycle then affects the species again. So there's kind of like, they create these coupled equations or coupled cause and effects. And so kind of model, try to model this symbiotic effect. And I'd be interested to look at more how the symbiosis couples with the water in these, you know, in these ecology and biological thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, and so it totally love that. And I would just support that one angle on that is to say that um, uh, when we think of the water cycle, there's the, the typical kind of classic cycle of the ocean evaporates and it condenses and it pure distills and then it comes back down as as solid liquid or rain and it goes into vegetation and groundwater surface water and returns to the ocean and evapotranspires boom that's really the um the the interesting piece about that is that the forest part the the evapotranspiration parts that bill mollison used to say one of the co-founders of permaculture that animals are just the mobile parts of the forest and 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 what i said earlier is the atom of life is carbon but the molecule of life is water all life when it's actively respiring and metabolizing is by volume mostly water when a moss is dehydrated and dried up and not just in the summertime it's still alive but it's not mostly water. Then the rain comes and it swells up again and it becomes mostly water. So think about every life form and the volume of water it holds for every animal, every fungus, every tree, all of that, they are the water cycle. They're, mm -hmm. just, the, they're just the mobile metabolically molecular part of the water cycle as another pool. They're the, the, the animal pool of water, the plant pool of water, the fungal pool, the bacterial pool is different than the atmospheric pool, the oceanic pool, the groundwater, right? They're all, and, and I think you're right that that hasn't been teased apart in the scientific literature enough towards a symbiotic idea of this, this hypothesis of planet, the Gaia hypothesis is wholly dependent on the fact that we live on planet water. Uh, no water, no life, full stop, right? And so the carbon cycle is the, the atom upon which the foundation of the molecule, the hydrocarbons and such is built, but the lubricant of life is the liquidity of life, it's water. Mm. Cool. Um, uh, maybe that's a good place to stop. Um, or 
or do you have any more final words um you want to share? no no i just um i'm happy to leave it there and just thank you for your deep thinking on this and supporting folks collectively to yeah think like a watershed re re reconnect their relationship their basins of relations to slow it spread it sink it but you first got to think it and then you got some clean water to drink it you know what i'm saying so there you go just <laughs> honor your bipedal sack of saline solution selves and your opposable thumb in your frontal lobe and and become a regenerative disturber and an agent for reconnecting with rehydration in this revolution yeah yeah thank you for all your work um with all the things you've been doing like from the beavers to the gray water to the um agriculture to the california plans um and i think your love of language has kind of seeped in like it's it's left us legacy with the slow it sink it spread it, and i think also with a number of other phrases yeah. um do you do you just want to just share your website um what's your website with the water institute and oaec sure you can just go to www.oaec.org that's for oxford city ecology center that's the main website and then when you get there you'll see you can click on the water institute and the beaver campaign, or you might be interested in our wildlands program and could have a whole other show talking about the, the fuels to flows and the work that we've been doing on slash ain't trash, it's beneficial biomass and limbing and thinning forests and stuffing gullies to do all this work as upland beavers. Beavers can really in a watershed, if you actually had a map of a watershed and you put all the blue ink where the perennial waters are, where beavers could live and the fish live, that, that surface area of ink over that whole map is probably less than 10 or 15% of a watershed. Most of every watershed is uplands. It's terrestrial. And so if we don't act like beavers in the uplands and do the work to slow spread and sink up there so that the beaver have cleaner water, more water in the fish. So we've been doing a lot of work because OAC is all upland habitat. So folks might be interested in looking at some of that, um, some of that upland work where we're really connecting our fire fears with our water woes by, by bridging these fuels to flows. And again, that's carbon cycle, water cycle, life cycle, integrated whole system responses. Cool. And then you also have um, a little template for if your, your, your community or your neighborhood wants to restore their watershed too, right? A little- Yeah, you can find a booklet. There's a booklet on the website, um, on the Water Institute website, go to publications, and there's a booklet called Basins of Relations. And, and that's a fun little booklet that talks about that. And there's also our beaver booklet there. There's a lot of publications on the publication site. So check that out. So the basins of, uh, basins of relations, have you been trying to get that out to communities to help them? So that back in 1999 through 2006, I did a training called Basins of Relations, starting and sustaining community watershed groups. And people would come for a five-day residential training who all lived in a shared watershed or basin. And they were creating watershed councils and watershed groups and, and then would go home to do that work. And a number of those still exist today. Um, and so that, that idea of, it's really community organizing work, to be honest with you. We at OAC are, ultimately we're a community organizing center. So we've had a school garden teacher training program for 25 years doing ecological literacy in public schools. We did community watershed organizing, doing the beaver organizing, the, the fire safe community resilient organizing work a lot with an amazing organization called Movement Generation, the Justice and Ecology Project. So we're really community organizers, but striving to integrate in the, the ecological literacy component simultaneously to a social justice or a just transition framework. 
that's ecologically literate and socially uh, regenerative and responsible. So uh, you, uh, actually, I kind of want to bring up uh, the thing you said earlier about the slow water movement. I know Erica Geese, who wrote what, what, uh, what Water Wants, also suggests the idea of a slow water movement. And so it seems to me that your basins of relations would be one pillar that this slow water movement could uh, stand on, like kind of getting a lot of communities around the world start, you know, <clears throat> redoing their watershed. Um, do you want to yeah. say a little bit about your ideas of a slow water movement? Sure. And if you if you look that phrase up, you put in my name and and slow water movement or slow it spread at sink it, you'll see an article that um, a woman named Catherine Cook uh, interviewed me and co-wrote with me back in 2006, where I used this idea of slow water movement and slow it spread it, sink it, store it, share it. And so um, and it's it's exactly what we've been talking about, like really promoting the consciousness of basins of relations, the community organizing around that how we think like a watershed, how we do low impact development and best management practices for stormwater management and water quality and water quantity in the ag space, in the ranching space, in the urban space, um, the beaver space. And, and so I think um, I know Erica a little bit and her book, I'm almost done, I'm almost finished with the book. It's a wonderful read. And, and I totally appreciate that in her own um, journey in thinking about this as a journalist, in the last some bunch of years, the again, this idea of convergent evolution, it's at some level a reasonably obvious concept to come up with. And so I, I see it as a, a wonderful complement of convergent evolution and bringing it forth. And, and I, what's great about her book is then, you know, she, she did globe trotted around and, and, and just these amazing stories out of Peru and India and, you know, the United States and other places and talking about that there's a, she actually has a chapter on beaver, which is wonderful too. So I, I, I think it's just the more the merrier and bring it on at every, at every scale of consciousness and demonstration for, for people to get, get the importance and the context of what we're talking about, that this is really fundamental and critical. It's, it's really critical worldview um, opportunities to support us in thinking differently and acting differently in the face of what some of us call global weirding. <laughs> mm. And, you know, if you're going to, if the weather whiplash, which is real and California's very deeply into this expression of it in the last couple of years, how do we buffer and ameliorate through that mitigation adaptation framework to oftentimes I think of watersheds as living lifeboats from ridge to river, from summit to sea, from stem to stern, we have to rethink and retrofit these living lifeboats at every scale of land use, from forestry to rangeland to agriculture to urbanization, suburbanization. How do we rethink and retrofit for rehydration? And those, the tools in the toolbox are different at different scales, but the pattern has continuity. So we're, that opportunity for a slow water movement is, is before us, and if we're really looking at watersheds like living lifeboats, the opportunity to organize together is like battening down the hatches for the coming storm of the present and future moment as these lifeboats are gonna get tested. And some lifeboats, if we retrofit it again from summit to sea to be resilient and recharging and regenerative, 
will fare better, better in the storm if we all get together and pull in the same direction in a collaborative and convivial way, which is really about the community part of the relations in our basin versus the competitive part that it's commodity and, it's com and, and the competition against. It's really community with. Mm. I want to share a little idea had of the, you, we could have like slow water circles where you can call the people in your neighborhood together to kind of discuss the idea of slow water. And because I think it's still not in the mainstream awareness, the idea of slow water. So, so you could, you know, watch a film together, maybe some of your stuff, um, just discuss what slow water could do in your neighborhood. And because it has, it provides a solution for floods, for fires, for drought. Um, and so, and, and for water scarcity. So kind of have a discussion and then maybe then you could kind of move to implementing stuff after the discussion. I love it. No, it's a, it's a classic pattern, right? Like a book club or get together and study. And then your point of transitioning to then implementing and having projects. You know, an organization I'll just lift up here um, who I think is modeling this and has been for a while and, is, and I know stepping it up is a group in Petaluma, Sonoma County here, although they work throughout the Bay Area, um, uh, called Daily Acts. And Trathan Heckman and their crew, and I know that they they're now involved in Petaluma. They they they're part of this whole Cool Cities Challenge, and they basically are doing similar to that. They're really looking at the city and looking at blocks of of area and creating like block captains and neighborhood groups, and they're meeting. And then the beauty of Daily Axes is, is that they have been implementing these solutions. They've been doing roof water catchment. They've been doing gray water systems. They've been doing swales and bioswales and rain gardens and recharge that irrigate food forests and impervious surface um, removal and, 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 and the education around that. But they bring groups together to actually implement it. And it's fun and it's a festive atmosphere. And they're very connected to the city of Petaluma, the county of Sonoma, broader entities. And so I think there's a model there. If you look up daily acts and their cool city challenge in the city of Petaluma there, but yeah, bring on a slow, slow water circles. I think it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I've met some of the daily acts people. They're pretty cool. And I think another group that's modeling is the flow project. Um, the flow partnership in India where they have over a thousand villages and they really mm -hmm. focus on getting the community talking to each other and thinking about the water situation and what to do. And, um, and then kind of working on it together, as opposed to so much of a top-down NGO that comes in and just says what everything you should do. They kind of get the, and then they kind of learn about what traditional Indians did, which actually is some of these slow water ideas with Joe has. And they have different names and swales and ponds, but they have Indian terms for it. Yeah, and, and I think that's the fun part we know is that, um, you know, the name, the names should be custom and different based on the uniqueness and the cultural connectivity of wherever people come from. But what you find is that the um, in permaculture, we design from pattern to details and then you implement from detail to pattern. And what you see is the names of the details are unique and custom, but the pattern is, has continuity from India to Africa to Asia to California because gravity is universal. <laughs> Water has a certain set of patterns. Photosynthesis works in India like it works in California, right? I mean, so the fun part is that's why it's really important to key your solutions to these intrinsic keystone processes and methodologies um, because that's where then what the form looks like is unique, but the function has integrity because it's connected to intrinsic um, foundational patterns, right? And so I think that's 
what's super interesting. And, um, you know, like, for instance, we just had the blessing here at OAC working with uh, um, Water Stories and Zach Weiss and crew there um, to host Rajendra Singh, often referred to as the Waterman of India. And he's involved in many of these projects that you just talked about. And so he did a wonderful public talk at OAC, showed a film of their work, which is super inspiring that you can find on waterstories.org. Um, and then talk, and then we did a workshop here. And yeah, I, I've spent time, I got to spend time in Zimbabwe with the amazing water harvesting, the late Zephaniah Piri, and be with him and, and work with those communities in the dry parts of, of Zimbabwe. And Zephaniah Piri was the inspiration for another close colleague, Brad Lancaster in Tucson, Arizona, who if people don't know Brad Lancaster's work and rainwater harvesting for drylands and beyond, he's got a two volume set that are the, they are your Bibles, if you will, to water harvesting and, and that kind of work. And Brad had been in Zimbabwe and got inspired by Zephaniah Piri's work there. And so he's amazing. So I, I think, you know, we find these, these folks, the work of, I lived in the high Andean um, parts of Ecuador for 11 months, but I spent four months above 13,000 feet with a Quechua family who managed the ditch that had been there for a thousand years of what would be called key line in, in permaculture in Australia of moving water from a concentrated source along an off contour ditch that falls at 2% slope for five miles until it is used for irrigation for their upland potato patches and living with them and managing that ditch and cleaning it and keeping that water flowing. Um, but my first introduction to water harvesting was actually living on a kibbutz in in Israel in 1983, and we went to the famous place in Masada above the Dead Sea, where that group of Israelites holed up on the top of Masada while the Romans built a ramp of earth to kill them. And they, in the Dead Sea area of the Negev Desert, where you get less than an inch of rain, they carved grooves into the hillside on this little mountaintop plateau to harvest rainwater, run it off contour into a cistern built into the rocks. And they survived for years up there on rainwater harvesting. And when I saw that in 1983, my mind went crazy with thinking about this. And so hanging out with the permaculturalists, the yeoman's key line thing, the Sepp Holzer kinds of world, the Rajendra Singh world, the Zephaniah Piri's, the, the like just anybody you can get to be engaged and witness this work and, and recognize Everywhere there's slope and water, every culture has figured out how to have a relationship with that. Every rice paddy throughout Asia, imagine what those folks have been doing. The Kanats of, of the Arabian Peninsula are amazing. The, in Yemen, these terraces in Yemen are amazing. So we abandon gravity in the sort of post fifties world where we had enough fossil fuels and electrification through the damming of rivers to generate pumps. And the green revolution of agriculture that was brought forward with Norman Borlaug and all of that work to quote, feed the world was irrigated by a silent blue revolution that was based on the unsustainable extraction of groundwater through the electrification of that based on the damming of big rivers for hydroelectric. So as soon as we coupled electricity to extract water and pump water, we abandoned the sacred relationship to the subtlety and nuance of being in relationship with water and gravity. And that was one of the great, great um, conundrums that I think we're learning from beavers how to get back there again. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Why that? <then? laughs> 
coverage of a lot of things there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's good to know that all around the world, there's a lot of different stuff um, being done and that kind of creating this slow water movement. And also like, yeah, there's a lot of paradigms that have problematically that we have to, um, yeah. I forgot my favorite, not my favorite, but one of them I spent a bunch of time looking with is in, in Polynesia and specifically in Hawaii is their system called the Aopua'a system where you've got these volcanic cone-shaped landscapes and the watersheds that divide off of those are like pie shapes and the entire cultural setup for the land use pattern of the Hawaiian islands was based on this Aupua'a from the ridge in the top of the volcano where the sacred goddess of Pele runs the show and how that water moved down in a watershed all the way out to the beach and eventually to the reef and how they patterned those, those systems for the key point in permacultural key line where the depth, the erosional to depositional transition in a sine wave curve and you intercept that flow in the main channel and you slowly pull it off onto the hill slopes like like an acequia ditch of new mexico at a one percent slope and then you pull those irrigated canals off and then you gravity feed in their case taro patties versus rice paddies of Asia or bean fields in New Mexico. And it's the same idea. And then the food forests were below the taro paddies or are surrounding them on the hill slopes. And then the village was down in the low elevations. And then the fish ponds were in the intertidal zone of the coral reef. And their entire patterning of those islands for the amazing fecundity they had was watershed consciousness based on a slow water movement, in their case for taro. If if an alien lands here and was to ask any culture, and I could ask one question of a culture, I would say, take me to your carbohydrate. And if I get taro in if I get taro in Polynesia, I get rice in Asia, I got bananas or or teff in Africa, I get um cassava or potatoes in South America, I got corn in the Americas. Every your the carbohydrate and how people irrigated that or not is the nexus of traditional ecological knowledge and traditional indigenous hydroengineering. Mm, wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> cool. All righty. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Okay. All right. Take care, Alpha.